Before you start to hear the gospel, I want to do two things. The first thing I want you to do is to reorient your thinking. When, when most people hear the gospel, and most people in our culture doesn't have to be the gospel, it could be anything, we see ourselves as the center of every conversation. How does this relate to me? But, but if you don't start to hear the gospel with God as the center of the conversation, then you're not going to get it how you need to get it in order to actually receive it properly. So at some point in the, in the process, we'll switch and we'll listen from our own perspective. But, but what I want you to do right now is imagine yourself as God from the perspective of understanding the gospel, okay? All right. And then uh, let me just define some terms. Gospel. Gospel is a, is a word that means good news. So it could be the gospel of the potluck because we're hungry, right? The good news that there's food across the parking lot. In this context, the good news, the gospel is that every person, every human being born is born lost from God. Now, until a certain age, children have a grace from God that, that if they pass, if they're aborted, if they die in childbirth, if they die as a little kid, they've not yet reached the age of accountability, so God gives them a grace, and they, they get to be with him eternally because they don't have the maturity to be able to make a decision for Jesus. But once you've reached that age of accountability, I'm just seeing a car in a parking lot. Once you've reached that age of accountability, then you are accountable. And, and you then are dead in your sin. If you think you never sinned, you did. And you, you have to decide whether or not you want to respond to the gospel, the good news that in Jesus Christ you can be forgiven for your sin and um, taken out from under God's eternal wrath. So that's a summary of what the gospel means. Saved, born again, life. You know, Christians, we use those terms a lot. They're all synonymous as, as it relates to the gospel. So if somebody is saved, they've gone from spiritual death to spiritual life. That happens because they're born again. If somebody says, I'm born again, Jesus said, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. Unless you're saved, unless your sins are remitted, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. So if you hear me use the term saved, if you hear me use the term born again or coming into life, it it means that somebody has gone to that place where they've responded to the gospel their sins have been forgiven, they've become righteous in Jesus Christ, and they now have eternal life in him. The wrath of God, which, which would be expressed by uh, hell, is not part of their future anymore. Another word that we don't use a whole lot is covenant. Covenant is a, is a term that's uh, not exactly synonymous to contract, but it's very similar to a contract. Uh, the easiest to understand example is, is marriage. When a man and a woman, that are actually a man and a woman, that's a whole different conversation, but when a man and a woman choose to enter into the covenant of marriage, then they make vows to one another. Those vows define the terms of the covenant. Things like forsaking all others. Things like till death do you part, in sickness and in health in richer or poorer. I, I, I don't, you know, you'd think I would know these pretty good. And that's why when, when I perform a wedding, I only will marry Christians because you can't make a godly covenant between 
between two people that don't have a covenant with God already and why I don't, I don't care if people write their own vows, but they have to also use the vows like until death do us part, forsaking all others, because those are the vows that, that make the covenant godly, right? So when we come to know God, we come into re, a restored relationship with God, it's based upon covenant. There are terms to the covenant, and, and that's what we'll talk about today. And then, and then the last thing is sin. Sin is kind of a tricky thing to define. Everybody sort of understands what it is, but it's not easy to describe. So the way I would describe it for our purposes today would be anything that you would do or think that would rebel against or be contrary to how your king, your, your maker, would have you be, act, or think would be sin. So if he says that, that stealing is wrong and you steal, that would be sin because it's contrary to his will. If he says, don't eat from the fruit of that particular tree, or you'll die, that would be sin. And if you do that, then there's a consequence. And sin, the easy way to kind of recognize it is, sin creates a debt with God. So, so when you commit a sin, you've created a, a debt towards God that you can't repay. It's impossible. Remember, I think it was last week, the, the Lord has kind of given me some thoughts about the difference between when you sin against a person and when you sin against God, which really anytime you sin against a person, you also sin against God. But when I sin against Jeff, the, the cost of my sin against Jeff is equal. So the Bible uses things like an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. So if, you know, in my anger, I punch Jeff, which, you know, he's way bigger than me, so I probably wouldn't do that. But if I punch Jeff in the mouth and his tooth fall out, then, then he is legitimately able to, you know, take out one of my teeth. It doesn't make him whole, but it's justice. That law was instituted so that people wouldn't, you knocked out my tooth, so I'm going to kill you. It was actually to mitigate the response to sin, not to make sure that it, it was responded to, because he could always offer me mercy if he chose to. But the law says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, a comparable thing, because I'm sinning against a man or he could sin against me, that would be the way that you would see justice. But, but that sin against Jeff is also a sin against my maker. And when I commit that sin against my maker, the just penalty is the eternal wrath of God. No hope of ever getting free. It's, it's imprisonment in hell with no hope of ever getting out because I took out Jeff's tooth. Now, we might think that seems like a an unreasonable penalty for such a small thing. But we don't understand God's holiness, and we don't understand how sinful sin really is. But that gives you an indication of just how bad sin really is. Because on the, on the human level, a corrupt person harming a corrupt person, it's, a, it, it's what feels like a like response. But a corrupt person against a perfect and holy God, any sin, the wage is eternal death, never-ending, no hope. It creates a debt that we'd never be able to repay. Okay, so now, remember, I, I asked you to put yourself in your mind. You're seeing this through, through God's eyes, okay? Consider creation. God created everything that is, all of creation. You say, but the stars are a gazillion billion light years apart. Yep, God did that. And, and one star, just our sun, is just like a garden variety average star, is like... 
so massive and so powerful. How could that be? Because God can do it. There's billions and trillions of stars. Yep. What do you make them from? Nothing. From, from the word of his voice, he spoke from no material, material. He's God. Then from the dust of the earth, God, remember, you're seeing this through God's eyes. God took the dirt of the earth, like the, the most common thing, and he formed it into what he would call man or mankind, Adam. And once he had formed him into, you know, this physical package that we're familiar with, God put his lips to the man's nostrils and he breathed into him. And the very breath of God is life itself. So without God's breath, Adam is just a clay formed up, you know, human looking thing. It's like a, a vase on your shelf. It's, it's nothing because there's no life. There's no soul. There's no spirit. But when God breathes, he breathes life. And Adam became man mankind. And God, he surveyed all of creation and the earth and the animals and, you know, the elephant had a mate and the giraffe had a mate and the mosquito had somebody, but Adam didn't have anybody that was like him. So God put him to sleep and he took a piece of bone from his rib and from that bone, he fashioned him a comparable, suitable helper, Eve, woman. So now there's man and there's woman, and they're complementary to one another. One's not greater than the other, but, but God has ordained that the man would be the head and the, and the woman or the wife would be the suitable helper to the man. So you have this creation story. You have uh, all, of, all of life on this planet, but only one species of life was created in God's image. That was Adam and Eve. So God created mankind in his very image and that's why murder is such a terrible crime that's why stealing from somebody is such a terrible crime because you're stealing or speaking against slander is such a terrible thing because you're speaking against god's very image when you do that and if we would have that perspective it would help us a lot to rule in this unruly member called our tongue adam and eve were created perfect they, 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 the standard of God's glory, they possessed it. The scripture says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. So Adam and Eve actually walked in the very glory of God, the holiness, the righteousness of God. They were perfect. If you said like, if you tried to talk to Adam and Eve about dying someday, they, they would have no idea what you're talking about. It wouldn't make any sense to them because it wasn't a paradigm in their world. They were never going to die. They were very much exactly perfect as God himself is perfect. And that's the standard required to be with God. The way he made mankind is the way he'll interact with mankind. When mankind chose not God, then they fell from that glory and they broke relationship with God because the standard to have relationship with God, you got to hear this, it's not a good person. It's not a class curve. Well, you know, I'm better than most, and, you know, God would take me because I'm good. Nobody's good. Nobody is good. Not one human being. Mother Teresa's righteousness. Everybody know who that is? Mother Teresa, right? Lay in the gutter with the lepers. Just gave herself. And her righteousness is like filthy rags to God. That's how different her righteousness is from his perfect holiness. Now, we see her because we see on a human curve, and we say, well, you know, she's at the top of the curve. But the top of the curve, you can't even find God. When you go up looking for his righteousness, there's no comparison between the two. 
So when, when a person thinks about being restored, reconciled back to God, it's not their goodness. It's his goodness that they require. So if you share the gospel with somebody, or if you're hearing the gospel today, you need to understand that, that it is impossible for you to be saved of your own work. You don't possess the righteousness. The corruption that happened with your sin, really seminal sin from Adam himself, has been transmitted down through the line. By one man all sinned, and by one man all become righteous. The first Adam, Adam. The second Adam in that context, Jesus. In Jesus, everyone can be righteous. In Adam, everyone is unrighteous. And that's the, that's the, uh, the economy that God created for those that were created in his image. So the perfect holiness and righteousness of God is the standard of salvation. You can't be saved without it. People, if you share the gospel, people will, will say, well, I'm a good person, right? But they're not a good person, and they know they're not a good person. There's, God has blessed us with a conscience. He's written his truth in mankind's hearts. So, so when a person thinks they're okay, or they do something sinful against their maker, in their deepest part of their self, they know it, because he's given them to know it in the hopes that they'll recognize it and they'll repent and be born again and, and come back into relationship with him. But it's possible for a person to, to be so um, unresponsive to their conscience that they, they can become hard-hearted. The Bible calls them calloused or hard-hearted. And there can come a point for a person where they become so calloused towards God that he gives them over to their reprobate mind that he will turn them over to be who they want to be, which means he's, he, their conscience has been seared. They don't, they don't any longer sense the evil in the evil that they do. They would have no interest in being reconciled to God because they would see themselves like God. So people can actually get to the place where they've so rebelled against God, they've so rebelled against their conscience that their, their hearts can be seared to the place where now they can't even desire to ever want God. And, and that's actually the beginning of God's wrath on a person before they even leave this life is when he decides to let them have what they actually want. Before I go more on the gospel, there's a term called truth claims. Right? You, you might have heard of many different religions. I, I have a friend, his name is uh, Ponaya Sahadevan. He was born in Sri Lanka. He was a sales guy that worked for me, probably the best sales guy I had through all the years at HP. You could always count on, uh, his nickname was Lon. They called him Lon because it's short for Teflon, and nothing ever stuck to Lon. It was funny. But anyway, Lon um, is a Hindu. And the Hindu religion has like a million gods. So when I talk to Lon about Jesus, he's very receptive because... He's just one of the million he doesn't already know. And, and Jesus is a God, just like the cow is a God, and this one's a God, and that one's a God. For me to embrace his faith, I have to understand the truth claims of Hinduism. For him to understand my faith, he has to understand the truth claims of Christianity. Islam has truth claims. Hinduism has truth claims. Judaism has truth claims. 
Christianity has truth claims. And Buddhism, I don't think is actually a religion in the way that we think of religion. So I'm not that familiar with Buddhism. If you believe the truth claims of Christianity, then you have to believe that all the rest of them are false. See, Jesus himself, in describing how a person might come back into a reconciled relationship with God, said, I myself, Jesus, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, now the Muslims would claim that their God and, and the God of the Christians and the Jews is the same God. And, and they would come to that perspective because of their father Abraham and our father Abraham. Abraham had two sons. He had Ishmael and he had Isaac. Ishmael was what the Bible calls the son of the flesh. His wife, uh, Abraham's wife couldn't have any children and God promised him that he would have a son and that his name would go down through his son and, and he would be a blessing to all the world. Abraham would be through his son and uh, the son didn't come. So his wife offered Abraham her maid, her servant, a lady named Hagar, because Sarah, his wife, couldn't have a child. So he made a baby with <laughs> he made a baby with Hagar. That's Ishmael. Now the line of Ishmael is what we would know as like the Arabic people, the Muslim people in the Middle East. But he was the son of the flesh. He wasn't the son of the promise. And eventually, the son of the promise, Isaac, came. And then from Isaac was Jacob. And from Jacob are the 12 tribes. His name changed to Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. And all of the Jewish people that God chose to be his people as a sign to the world come down through the line of from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to the 12 tribes to all the people. So they could trace their, their lineage back to Ishakar or Joseph or Levi or Dan, any of those 12. So the Muslim says our God is the same God because that God spoke through Abraham and Abraham had two seeds and we find our way up to God through Abraham through Ishmael and you find your way up to God through Abraham by way of Jacob and Isaac. But Jesus says I am the only way and they don't recognize Jesus. The Bible says that, that the salvation comes through Isaac's seed, which ultimately was Jesus, right? Because he was born in Isaac's line uh, from the tribe of Judah. So the Muslim has a claim, but according to Christianity, it's a false claim. The only claim that can get you to the Father is through Jesus. So when somebody says, well, you Christians are exclusive, the answer is we are. We absolutely are. God loves everybody. And he wants everybody to be with him eternally. But there's only one way that he's provided for that to be. So I put my faith in Christianity, in Jesus. Somebody else in Allah, through the writings of the prophet Muhammad, how do you know who's right? You've got to look at the truth claims. I don't know the truth claims of Allah. I don't know the truth claims of Islam. I know the tr truth claims of Christ. And if I trust in the truth claims of Christ, I don't even need to research those. Because he says, I'm the only way. There is no other way. So what are the truth claims? One of them is messianic prophecy. 
The Bible uses this word Messiah in the Old Testament and Christ in the New Testament. And for thousands of years, people spoke to this Messiah or this Christ, this anointed one that would come. And sometimes they spoke the words. They didn't really have a great understanding of what that meant. Matter of fact, most of Judaism missed their Messiah because they don't recognize Jesus as the one having fulfilled the prophecies. So you see in the Old Testament writings, all these prophecies, all these prophecies, born of a virgin, was uh, born in Bethlehem, but was a Nazarene, lived in Nazareth, came out of Egypt, which all is true. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He, his parents were warned by an angel, and they fled to Egypt. When the time was safe, they came out of Egypt and settled back in Nazareth. Uh, born of a virgin, he was born of a virgin, um, just statistically, they say that the chances that anyone could have fulfilled the prophecies that Jesus fulfills is nil. So nil is greater than zero, but it's effectively zero. There's no way. The chances are astronomical, yet Jesus fulfills the prophecies. So one of the ways the truth claims that we have that Jesus actually is the one is, is the fulfilling of the prophecies. Another way we have are miracles. Jesus said, you can know that I'm the one by the works that I do. And he did impossible things, naturally impossible things. He had, he had uh, dominion over nature itself. When uh, he needed to get from one side of the lake to the other side of the lake, he walked on top of it. When uh, the wind was blowing and the boat was about to be swamped and all the guys in the boat thought they were going to die, Jesus was asleep. They woke him up. We're going to die. We're going to die. I imagine he yawned and he said, peace, be still. The wind stopped. The seas calmed. He told nature, behave yourself. He's walking past a fig tree and he's hungry. It's not even fig season. And he sees there's no figs on the fig tree. He curses the fig tree. Later in the day, they're coming back. They walk past the fig tree and it's all withered and dead. They said, look, Lord. This tree that you've cursed is actually withered and dead. Can Islam make those claims? They can't. Do the Hindus make those claims? They don't. So when I think about which religion, Christianity is greater than nature. My goodness, and then he said that we would do the works he did. And we do. That's what today's about, hearing the gospel and then doing the works that he did on behalf of the people that he loves. The third thing we have as a truth claim is the resurrection. No other world religion can claim a resurrection because once people are dead, they stay dead. Only Christianity can claim a resurrection. So how, how can that happen? How is somebody resurrected? If it can't happen in nature, it has to happen some other way. How does it happen? It happens because there's a God. There's one God. And he's resurrected one man such that all men can be resurrected in that one man. See, see, these are the truth claims of Christianity that cause me to not have a blind faith, but an extremely informed faith that the true God that created everything that is actually had a son and a plan, and Jesus is the one. I know it. Not because some book said so. I know it because the book demonstrates it. It doesn't just tell me. See, the Bible's not a marketing brochure 
for Judaism and Christianity. And, and when I was an unbeliever, that's the way I looked at it. Somebody wanted to make a claim, they'd make it out, they'd make it out of their book. I'm like, well, don't tell me about your book. Because your book is just your thing that somebody wrote, you know, to tell people what you think. But see, I've come to understand that it's not that at all. It, this thing is a, is a histor- an historical document. And it's supernatural. I mean, it's literally supernatural. If you take the time with the Holy Spirit to read this book, you can't not believe in a God, number one. And you can't not believe that the God that we serve as Christians is that God. So then, if all of mankind, through their rebellion, through their father Adam, and then through their own personal actions, has been eternally separated from God, what did God do so that mankind could then be reconciled back to him? Because remember, God never stopped loving Adam. He never stopped loving Eve. There is no person that's born in sin, that continues to sin, that wasn't created in God's mind before the very foundation of this world. There is no person that will eventually go to hell or is already in hell right now that God doesn't love with a perfect love. But his love creates the opportunity for them to be with him. It doesn't make it such that they can be with him. The gospel is what makes it that they can be with him. So God had a plan to pay the debt for mankind's sin And that was to make an offering to himself that was equal to the magnitude of the weight of the sin of all of humanity. And that's Jesus. Jesus, his very son. Jesus, who is God. The Bible calls him the spotless lamb of God. And if you're familiar with the the Hebrew sacrificial system, right? You know, they had a law, and for every transgression, there was a specific thing that you had to do to get kind of back right with God. But none of those things could make you forever right with God. So they sacrificed bulls, and they sacrificed sheep, and they sacrificed goats, they sacrificed turtle doves. Because remember, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But that was not perfect blood, so it wasn't perfect remission. They had to stand in faith that the perfect lamb would come someday and be sacrificed on their behalf. So Jesus is the Lamb of God. He was to be offered for the payment for our sin debt. In order for him to be an acceptable sacrifice for our sin, he had to be tempted in every way that every man has ever been tempted and stumbled. So from Adam right through whoever will be the last person born, every temptation that they would suffer with and stumble against. Jesus had to be tempted the same way and not stumble. Now, Jesus is God. He always was God. He will always be God. While he was incarnate on earth as a man, he was still God. But in order for him to be an acceptable sacrificial lamb, he had to be perfect and sinless, not in his deity, but in his manhood. So, The way that Jesus was tested was as a man. He had the Holy Spirit. He didn't have the original corruption of Adam like we all did because his seed that he was born was God himself. That's why Mary had to be a virgin. If if Jesus had been conceived by Joseph and Mary together, then he would have been corrupted at his conception because that sin, that seminal 
sin seed comes down through the father, through Joseph. So Jesus couldn't have been naturally born because he would have been unacceptable from the minute he was conceived. So the seed of God is what conceived Jesus. But other than that, he had to suffer every temptation just like you or I do. He had to be perfectly sinless. He could have no sin when he was offered. And also, he had to be made perfect. Which is a weird thing if you're a Christian to think about. It's because we know Jesus to be perfect and sinless. In what way would somebody who is perfectly sinless need to be made perfect? And the way that he, was, that he needed to be made perfect, the process was suffering. And the reason was that he was destined to be our high priest in heaven forever. And while we're on this earth and we struggle with the things that we struggle with, we can go boldly, the Bible says, to the throne of grace and find grace and mercy in our time of need from our high priest, not because he knows everything, but everything we're struggling with, he's experienced. So the perfection is that he had to be perfected in experience so that he could meet us with such tender compassion when we struggle with things and he can provide for us that kind of grace and mercy in our time of need. That's pretty awesome. So then, how do we know Jesus can save us? How do we know that he's the spotless lamb of God? How do we know that he never had any sin at all? Well, we know he was the Messiah because of the prophecies, right? Because of the miracles. And we know that he never had a sin because of the resurrection. If Jesus had had any sin at all, just the tiniest, tiniest little transgression, he wouldn't have been resurrected on the third day. He'd still be in the tomb, dead, because the wage of sin is death. So we are confident when we place our trust in Jesus as our Savior that we can actually have our sins taken away from us because God accepted him as the payment for our sin debt. So the keys... The keys to Christian faith are the cross, right? You're all familiar with Jesus on the cross. Maybe you're not. Jesus, when the right time came, when it came time for him to be offered as an offering for our sin, he was captured, he was beaten, he was um, um, slandered. What's the word when you make fun of somebody? Mocked, ridiculed, made fun of, spat upon. God himself. The people that he was dying to save were spitting on him. And he said to his father as he hung on the cross, forgive them, for they don't even understand what they're doing. These that are spitting at me, that are ridiculing me, that are mocking me, that have grabbed him by his beard and jerked the beard hairs right out of his face. They have taken big, long thorns on a vine thing and fashioned it into a, into a mocking crown and jammed the spikes into his scalp. They stretched him across a, a thing and they, they flogged him with this, this device called a cat of nine tails. It's like a, it's got a handle on it and it's got a strap. And at the end of the strap would be like shards of bone. And the guys who administered that flogging would get a flogging themselves if they took any mercy on the person that they were flogging. They were exhausted at the end of the flogging. They would literally take the cat of nine tails and they would swing it as hard as they could so that those bone shards at the end would uh, embed themselves in the flesh of the person. And then when they pulled it away, it would take some of that flesh with it and pull the skin apart 
And when Jesus actually um, came out of that flogging, they say he was so disfigured that his organs could actually be seen and that he couldn't even be recognized as human. He had been beaten so badly. Then they put a cross, a big wooden cross over his shoulder, and they made him drag it up the top of this hill where he was going to be crucified. They took spikes and they drove them through his wrist, right? There's a nerve right here, a big nerve bundle. They drive that spike right there for two reasons. One, it's a strong place so they don't fall off the cross. And two, it inflicts the most possible pain because they drive it through that nerve bundle. And then they cross his feet like this and they drive another spike through his feet to hang him on this cross. And you die on the cross by way of asphyxiation. Because the only way you can breathe is to pull yourself up so that you can expand your lungs. You can take a breath. You let yourself down. You exhale. You pull yourself up. Now understand, you're pulling yourself against those nerves, against that spike, and you take another breath. And sooner or later, the person on the cross has nothing left to be able to pull themselves up, and they suffocate. Now one of the prophecies about Jesus was that not a single bone of his body would be broken. As he's hanging on the cross, it's the preparation day for the Sabbath. And the Jews are like, there's two, two other guys being crucified with Jesus, one on either side. As they're being crucified, they're not dying fast enough. So they tell the Roman guards, they're like, hey, listen, you know, we need to get on with our preparation day. Would you please break their legs? Which is the way that they would do it. So that if they wanted to end it more quickly, they would break the person's legs. He wouldn't be able to then push up against his feet to take a breath and he would die sooner. They broke this guy's legs. They broke this guy's legs. When they came to Jesus, the, the, the prophecy said that not a bone in his body was broken. If they'd have broken his legs, then he ain't the guy. As they go to break his legs, somebody says, hey, I think he's already dead. So instead of breaking his legs, which would have broken the prophecy, they took a spear, which was another prophecy. They put it up under his ribcage, jammed it up into his heart, and it says blood and water flowed from his side. The blood from the pierced heart and the water from this thing called the pericardium, which is like a water sack around the heart. So the prophecy of his legs not being broken, even though the other two's legs were broken, the prophecy was that he would, he would be pierced through his side and that water and blood would flow out. Both happened. It's just, it's just more ways that we know Jesus truly is Messiah. The cross... God's wrath for all the sin of all of mankind poured out on Jesus. And it's literally God serving justice. Because even though he's merciful, he's just. So when I sin against God, there has to be a payment for the sin. The, the, the scale has to balance. So once I receive Jesus as my Savior, then all of the wrath associated with my sin was poured out on Jesus. And justice occurred, even though it doesn't have to be poured out on me. The second key to Christian faith is the resurrection. And that's the proof that Jesus was accepted by God as a sacrifice because he actually was perfect and spotless. The third key to Christianity is faith. Faith is how a person, a human being, appropriates the gospel to themselves by faith. And then finally, the gospel, the good news that through God's grace that we can be reconciled to him and avoid the eternal wrath associated with our sin. So the, the big keys to Christianity, the cross, the resurrection, faith, the gospel, and of course the sacrificial lamb of God, Jesus.
Okay, so now, up to now, you're seeing this through God's lens, right? So when a person says, well, I, you know, it's just, God should just let me in because, you know, I'm a nice guy and, and if he loves me, he puts me in. But now you can see from God's perspective, holy, perfect, just, it can't be that way. It just can't. If, if it were like that, then heaven would be as corrupted as this earth. Now, now you can change your lens and you can see from your perspective. So you understand that you and God are not peers. There's no peer relationship. When, when somebody puts a bumper sticker on their car and says, you know, Jesus is my homeboy, he's not. He's the almighty God, perfect and sinless, loving and just and gracious and merciful. And your righteousness is like filthy rags. That's what we need to see from the perspective of the Lord. Why it can't be how people say it is. He's not your co-pilot. He's not your peer. He can be your friend. He says that he'll be your friend. But even friendship with Jesus is conditional upon obeying his commands. Because if you disobey him, you're not friends with him. He won't be friends with you. You get to decide all the way through this thing. Now, when Jesus died, he bore the wrath of all the sin of all of mankind. It was completely taken care of. Jesus said, on the cross, it is finished. It's done. All the sin of all of mankind, all the wrath associated with the sin of all of mankind was poured out on Jesus. But not all of mankind will be saved. Because not all of mankind will choose God. They'll choose themselves. You know people that have heard the gospel and they, they won't respond to it because they choose themselves. <laughs> the, the mechanism, I mentioned this when I was describing terms, the me- terms, the mechanism that God uses to reconcile people back to himself is called covenant. Through covenant, a person can join him eternally. Through covenant, a man can have a wife. Through covenant, a woman can have a husband. Covenants have terms. Now, not every covenant has a term, but every covenant is binding. Example of a covenant that, that has, doesn't have terms on both sides would be the covenant that God made with Noah. Right? God was so upset with the, the filthiness and the evil of mankind, he said he's going to wipe the earth clean except for Noah and his family, the only righteous people on the whole earth. So God did that. He flooded the earth. All of mankind was killed in the flood. The animals were saved in the ark. The ark is a, is a type of Jesus. We're saved in the ark that's Jesus. If we get on the ark of Jesus, then we can be saved as well. And then God told Moses, I'm never going to do this again. And the sign of that covenant is the rainbow. So when you see a rainbow, you're reminded that God said that that he's never going to, by water, destroy the earth again. There was nothing that Noah had to do in that covenant. Only God did it. It was just a covenant that he made through Noah with all of mankind. But typically, a covenant has terms for all of the participants of the covenant. There's two kingdoms on this earth but billions of little kings. There's the kingdom of light, God, Jesus, the king of that kingdom. And it's a real kingdom. And then there's the kingdom of darkness. 
And Satan is the king or the prince of that kingdom. But within his kingdom, all of his subjects are little kings themselves. They've chosen that the king of their life is going to be them. The influence of their rule is going to be Satan. And they're going to continue to do evil because they love the darkness and they hate the light. In the kingdom of light, God's kingdom, God is king. And everyone that is in that kingdom has chosen to be in that kingdom because they wanted to be subject to God. And they relinquished the right to be king over their own lives. Does does that make sense? It's a really good way to see it because the process of actually entering the kingdom requires that we actually want to be in that kingdom. So then the question that I would ask you is this. If uh, Jesus died for you, would you die for him? I just heard a mighty rushing wind. I don't know if anybody heard that. but For those of you that are familiar with Acts chapter 2, that's kind of cool. Jesus died for you, will you die for him? See, because without Jesus' sacrificial death, sacrifice, there's no redemption for any man. No human can be reconciled to God. And every human is subject to the eternal wrath of God, weeping and gnashing of teeth, a body that burns up but won't die. But without our death... There's no hope for us personally. So Jesus died that we could have hope of reconciliation. To be reconciled, we have to die. Not a physical death, but a death to ourselves. We have to say, okay, I want to be in this kingdom, and to get into this kingdom, I have to commit my life to a new king. In this one, I get to be the king. I get to choose. If I, somebody I don't like him, I can tell him whatever I want. In this kingdom, I hold my tongue. In this kingdom, if you have something that I want and I can get it, I take it. In this kingdom, I never would do that. In this kingdom, if a person looks attractive to me and I want to have you know, affection with them, you get to do it. In this kingdom, you don't because you're choosing to die. I'm dying in my kingdom. I've gone dead. I'm being resurrected in God's kingdom to life. New king, new life, new program. So then the question again, we can change it because typically when the gospel is preached, it's preached the forgiveness of your sins. Do you want your sins forgiven? Do you want to be able to go to heaven instead of hell? Everybody would say, yeah, but unless they choose a different kingdom, then they didn't actually get their sins forgiven because you can't live in this kingdom this way. You're still king. You've never actually made that commitment. Do you pretending you know, you're know you not saved. Do you want Jesus? Do you want God as much as God wants you? It's not just a question of heaven and hell. See, most people, what they think they want is their own God-rejecting life now without paying the penalty for it later. So give me sinful life, but forgive my sins and let me stay in heaven because I don't want to burn in hell. Can't be that way. If a person doesn't want Jesus this life, he can't have him in the eternal life. This life is where you choose the kingdom you want to live in. If you don't choose it in this life, and you never know, right? Corinne got up in the morning. No indication that she wasn't 18 years old, right? But she didn't get breakfast. She didn't get lunch. She didn't get dinner. She, She was hit by a truck. She didn't know. 
Joe Brady, same thing. One second he's alive, the next second he's dead. If he hadn't have made that decision, if she hadn't have made that decision, now maybe Corinne might have been under God's grace as a child, but my guess is she probably was at the age of majority, which could be different for different people. Then they are burning in hell right now. How could that be? They were such a nice person. They weren't a nice person. They were a horrible person. You're measuring against your standard. You have to measure against his standard. God's kingdom is ruled by love. The kingdom of darkness is ruled by selfishness, by, by flesh, by desires for things that are hideous towards God. But God's kingdom is measured, or excuse me, is ruled by love. And the principles of love are defined by God, or the principles of, of love as defined by God are the way of his kingdom. So if you're thinking, you know, let me evaluate which one I want to be in. Maybe I'll take the eternity in fire so that I can have all my fleshly pleasures now. What's this kingdom like? Well, its, its way is love. The first principle in this kingdom is to love God, to make a choice to love God. And for me, that's easy because of the cross, right? I mean, you could say, well, I don't really know him that well. Well, I say he died for you. He took the wrath that was yours because you rebelled against him and hated him. I think he's a pretty good guy. I don't know anybody that would do that, but Jesus did. So the first command is to love God. And and the Bible describes the way you love God is you obey him. You, You live your life according to the principles of his kingdom. And, and love is much more than emotional effect, affection, not affection. It's more than emotional affection. Love is choice. When, when I chose to ask Teresa to marry me, and she chose to accept my proposal, then we became in this covenant. And even though I had serious emotional affection for Teresa, every single day I had to choose to remain in the covenant that we established, to forsake all others. Once you choose her, you choose not everybody else. You, you, you love based upon decision, not upon emotion. I didn't speak on the tree in the garden, did I? Let me back you up just a minute to the garden. God, when he created mankind, he created the earth for him, but a specific place for Adam and Eve was what's called the Garden of Eden. And it was awesome. Everything they needed was in the Garden of Eden, and everything that was in the Garden of Eden, they could have as much as they wanted of it. But God put one tree in the middle of the garden. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you hear anything today, well, you need to hear it all, but hear this. He put in the middle of the garden this tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he told Adam and Eve, everything is yours. You enjoy it as much as you want, but of that tree you shall not eat. Because if you do, you will die. Now that tree's fruit was very appealing. The reason why God did that is because love demands choice. They couldn't love God without the ability to not love God. The way that you love God is to obey him. The way that you demonstrate that you don't love him is you disobey him. So every time Adam and Eve walked past that tree in the garden and they looked up at that fruit and that fruit was appealing to them, yet they didn't take it and eat from it, they said, I love you, God. And God received love from them. 
But one time they looked at that tree and Satan himself, manifested as a serpent, came in and deceived them. Now, we know they weren't deceived to the point where they didn't understand because Eve herself spoke back to the serpent. Nope, God told us if we eat from that tree, we'll surely die. And they ate from the tree. Eve first and then Adam. And that's where sin came into the world. That's why sin is rebellion because God said, listen, if you love me, it's all yours except you have to show your love by not touching this one. So, same is true. Every time I don't touch the other one, I demonstrate to my wife that I love her. Every time I don't touch her with my anger, I demonstrate to my wife that I love her. Every time that somebody leaves a $10 bill on a counter and I know nobody's watching, I tell God I love him because I leave it there. Love demands choice. That's why the tree was in the garden. That's why we still have our flesh. This thing that continues to want to sin, even though we're born again, is because every time we choose not to, we tell God we love him. We're choosing to obey him by by which we say we love you, God. Okay. God says that if you love him, you'll live as he prescribes. You'll obey him. If your love for God is obedient to his ways, your love for everyone else will be excellent because his next most important command is to love others the way he loves you. So in God's kingdom over here, the, the guiding principle is love. Love God first, love everybody else the way he loves you. Another place he says, as you love yourself. And we might say, well, you don't love myself very much, but you really do. And, and you would treat other people how you would like to be treated is the principle of the kingdom in love. If a person wants to be king over their own life, they're free to do that. But not in God's kingdom. Not now and not eternally. Because that's not love towards God. The Bible speaks to the kind of devoted love that we must have if we're going to be a Christian. And it says that the devotion that we have to Christ in our love has to make our devotion to the most dear things in our lives look like hate in comparison. He doesn't doesn't want us to hate anyone. He wants us to love everyone. And he understands that, that if we will love him through obedience, then our love for everybody else will be pure because it'll, it'll be expressed in our obedience to his love. That makes sense? Yeah? Okay. Don't fall asleep yet. I'm almost done. By choosing to love God, somebody says, well, I, I don't, it doesn't seem right that God would want me to love him more than I love my wife. But if I love him the way he describes for me to love him, then my love for my wife will be perfect because love does no harm to another. So even though he demands first priority, it's actually such that we would live a life that would be more wonderful towards everyone else. God will not join himself to a person that doesn't really want him. You have to decide to want God. Every person must choose. That's hard. You know, you want to say, oh, God, he loves you so much. He loves you so much, Trustin. He just wants you to be happy, and he does. But the way that that process works is you've got to love him first because then he can work through you in such a way that you won't end up in this kingdom and eternally dead again. If a person doesn't want God, he won't have God. If he wants God, he'll, he'll receive God in the terms of the covenant that God presents to him. 
Jesus tells a parable in the Gospel of Luke that essentially says, count the cost. And, and the, the cost is your very life. If you want to have eternal life, if you want to live in this kingdom eternally, because we're all eternal beings. Do you understand that this, you'll die, this flesh will die, but your person will never die. Never. I mean, there's no end time to your life. Your soul and your spirit are eventually going to be attached to an eternal tent, body, and you'll either live in that body in heaven or you'll live in that body in hell. And because that body is eternal, the fire of hell can singe it and burn it and, and cause it pain, but it can't destroy it. So that you have to experience, you have to experience, you have to experience that wrath that never ends. Every life is eternal. Every human life is eternal. I don't know about animals. Every human life is eternal. Every soul, every spirit is eternal. You're going to live somewhere. Jesus says count the cost because it's not easy to keep his commands. It's not easy to follow him in a world that everything wants you to do different than what God would say. So he says before you make the decision, count the cost. What's the cost? It's everything in your life that you want that's contrary to him. So let's talk then about the covenant a little bit more. If, if there's a covenant between you and God, he provides something and you provide something. Here's kind of a summary of what God provides to you. He provides to you eternal life. He provides to you relationship with him. He provides to you the forgiveness of your sins. He provides to you to be holy and righteous as he is. He provides to you abundant life. He provides to you restoration to your created purpose. Don't you know that when God created you, it wasn't to go to the bar and get drunk. It wasn't to make babies out of wedlock. It wasn't to get as much stuff as you can get. There's a much higher calling and purpose on your life. And in Jesus, you can get restored back to that true purpose that you were created to serve. And, and that's kind of like Pastor Jim's analogy says, if, if you got a piece of board and you got a nail and you got a screwdriver and you got a hammer, if you beat that thing hard enough with a screwdriver, you could probably push the nail down. But the screwdriver's purpose was not to drive a nail. It's to twist a screw. And, and while you may be able to get some stuff done, it'll never be comfortable because that screwdriver is not being used as it was designed to be used. But you take a hammer in your hand and it's balanced. The weight is at the end and, and you get it started and the weight increases the force. And man, when it hits the end of that nail, in heaven they never bend. And it drives in that nail and it's right and, and because it's, it's doing what it was designed to do. And the same is true for us. When we come into relationship with God and then we serve him, we find the purpose that he has for our lives and it's satisfying like a hammer driving a nail versus unsatisfying like a screwdriver trying to pound a nail in. And he offers us eternal bliss versus eternal wrath, heaven instead of hell. So that's what God offers in the covenant. What does he require in the covenant from us? One thing, faith. But faith is two things. So let me describe faith. People think that faith is believing. And in, in an essence it is. But that's not the de definition of the faith that would cause a person to be reconciled to God. There's two components to that. The first is repentance. Um, the Bible describes that as giving Jesus lordship or kingship over your life. 
what that means to repent is to change the way you think. Over here, I think whatever I want is good, and I'm going to find a way to get it. Over here, I recognize that some of the things that I want aren't good, and I'm going to deny those things from myself. I'm going to change the way I think. I'm going to surrender my will to the will of my king. And God's expectation in the covenant is sincerity, not perfection. Okay? So you think to yourself, well, I can't imagine that I could ever live a sinless and perfect life. And the answer to that question is you're right. God will empower you with his Holy Spirit if you make that choice to be in covenant with him. But you're likely not to live a perfect life. And God does not measure his children, the saved ones, based upon their behavior or their performance. He measures their heart. So if you said that, that the purpose of your heart was to serve Jesus as Lord, to live in this kingdom the way that the king would have us to live, and you don't, you make a mistake, you slip, God doesn't measure your slip. He measures your heart. If he looks at your heart and he sees that, that your heart is deceitful and you never really gave your heart to this life, then you're in your sin because God won't be mocked. But if you sin, but your heart belongs to Jesus, God looks at your heart and he doesn't concern himself with your sin. He sees the righteousness of his son in you, not the unrighteousness of your behavior. That's a pretty big deal. Understand that one? Yeah? Okay. So the first thing that must come is repentance. That's the first piece of faith that has to be expressed in order to be reconciled to God in this covenant. The second is to believe or to trust that the sacrifice of Jesus was was fully complete to satisfy your sin debt before God. When someone says, believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus... What they're saying is that you believe that Jesus was an acceptable sacrifice for your sin. And you know that's true because of the resurrection. The Bible even says if a person believes everything correctly, yet they deny the resurrection, they can't be saved. So you have to trust in the resurrected Christ as the proof that when you placed faith in him, that he sufficiently paid your debt. And the Bible talks of a certificate, like, like a piece of paper. If you had a certificate, it'd be a big one. It'd be a scroll that's really long. And every sin you ever committed is on this thing because it's like a courtroom, right? And when you stand before God, you're going to be judged. And someone who doesn't have Jesus as Savior, they're going to roll open that, that scroll and they're going to be guilty. And the magnitude of that, what's on that scroll will determine the magnitude of the wrath that they'll experience for all of eternity. But when they open that one up for somebody who's trusted in Jesus as having paid their sin debt, they'll open that scroll up and it'll be just as long as the next guy's. But they'll find a hole in it because it's been nailed to the cross. It says that, that the, the certificate of, um, of our transgressions against us has been nailed to the cross in Christ Jesus. And Jesus will stand right there and he'll say, my blood covers it. And then... Bam, into heaven you go. Only because of your trust in Jesus and your commitment to repent and live according to the will of your king. That's faith. Two things. Repent and believe. Repent, change. Don't choose to live this way. Choose to live this way. And trust that the one that was sacrificed on your behalf was sufficient 
100% for that sacrifice. Amen? All right. I got like seven more pages of notes and we'll be done. The instant that you choose covenant with God to repent and to trust in Jesus as Savior, here's what happens. Your sin, all of it, not just up to this point, but all of it from this point forward is taken from your account and it's credited to Jesus' account. He's already experienced the wrath associated with that sin. It's off of you. It's on him. His perfect, sinless righteousness and holiness is then credited to you. So when God sees somebody who's placed their faith in Jesus, who's come into a covenant relationship with him, and they just told a lie, and he looks at them, what he sees is not the sinfulness of their lie, but the righteousness of his son. Because his righteousness becomes our righteousness. We don't have any righteousness. We can't be saved in our own right. That'd be self-righteousness, and we don't have it. The righteousness that a Christian possesses is the very righteousness of Christ himself, which is equal to the righteousness of God the Father. Jesus is God and makes us acceptable to be in his presence forever. A person is then born again or saved, again, from the eternal. You're saved from the eternal wrath of God. You're regenerated in your spirit. So your spirit becomes new, and then it becomes literally one with God's spirit. My friend Kenner describes it as the honey in his tea. He, he has a, a cup of tea. He puts in some honey. He stirs it up. You can't separate the honey from the tea. They're one. They're just integrated with each other. Our spirit becomes one with God himself, the Holy Spirit. That's what happens to us. You become indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit. God comes literally to live inside of us. He's then what empowers us to live this righteous life. He's then what causes us to desire to live this righteous life in God's kingdom is the presence of God himself inside of us. These are all things that we get. He then breaks the power of sin over our lives. So before you get born again, you're a slave to sin. Now you might be able to say no to some stuff sometimes, but you are a slave to sin. And you are going to continue to sin because it's your master. When you become a Christian, the power of sin is broken over your life. You might still sin, but it isn't because you didn't have a choice. It's because you chose. And you can confess, and God will forgive, and he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Because sin has no power to make you sin anymore. He sets you free from the power of sin. And then finally, with your life, which is really his life, because you've signed it over to him, as king, as, as God over your life, you start to serve your king. And the way that happens is through a process called discipleship. You come into a family of Christians, like a church like this or, or another church. Uh, you then have relationships. And what God has commanded his church to do is to make disciples. So then the power of the Holy Spirit and the fellowship of God's word and the other Christians, you begin to go, what the Bible says, from glory to glory and faith to faith unto the likeness of Christ. So your spirit, at the point that you're saved, is completely regenerated and integrated with God. It's one with God. And then your soul, your your mind, your will, and your emotions start to become transformed as you live a Christian life. That's what happens.
So today, we've got these little stations set up, these little prayer stations. If you have any questions, if you're ready, if you're somebody who hasn't actually died to yourself, hasn't actually chosen to give your life to Christ, to place your trust in him, to turn from the old ways to his ways, then today would be a great day to do it. You can, you can come into one of these little chairs. If you didn't understand anything, you can ask questions. And, and someone will joyfully walk you through the process of telling God that you're ready to do that. And then in that moment, you become born again. If you came here with any sickness, disease, depression, sadness, any of those kinds of things, then you can find your way into one of these chairs and we'll pray with you and you'll get healed and delivered. If, you're, if you choose not to respond to the gospel and you came here with a sickness or a disease, God loves you and, and, and if we pray for you, he'll heal you. But you won't be eternally healed without Jesus. He'll, he'll heal somebody who rejects him but they can't have eternal life if they reject him. If you choose to get saved today, to enter into covenant with God, you've got to find a church. You've got to have a Christian family because a sheep all by himself will get eaten up by the wolves. Sheep need a shepherd, and sheep need other sheep that are stronger and more aware to keep them safe from the, the enemy. Okay, now... Um, we had uh, three testimonies that we were going to share today, and then we'll pray. Do you guys want to come up? Would you come up and share your testimonies? I mean, everybody's kind of heard them, but maybe not everybody's heard them. Yep. Yeah, it never hurts us to hear again. Yep. So um, are you looking for me, or are you just going to sit with your wife? A mighty rushing wind. Go ahead. So, um, Lauren, why don't you start? The testimony of Jesus is like, is it the spirit of prophecy? Is that the way the word goes? So if you got, like I got, I got knees that aren't healed yet. The hearing of the testimony of Jesus, the hearing of the testimony of Jesus is like a prophetic spirit that if you hold on to it, it leads to the testimony of Jesus in your need as well. So testimonies are really important. It's cold in here? Coats, coats, coats. Wait a minute, What? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So um, somebody back there, turn this one on. Wow, look at just like that. One more. There you go. (laughs) That's blowing the blinds over there. Yeah. (laughs) Go ahead. Okay. um, About a year ago, I stopped taking all of my anxiety and depression medication, and that was a very intense roller coaster of not being okay. And in the summer when I was pregnant with the babies, I started attending Bible study and um, shifted my focus to Jesus. And I am 100% depression and anxiety free because of that. Without Um, meds. Without medication. That's correct. I don't attend therapy anymore. My Bible is my therapy. And um, I'm able to function as a normal human being because of Jesus. So, Amen. Thank you. And that's a big one. You know, we talk about healing, uh, you know, my knees or physical things or Isaac has got a fever and it broke when we prayed for him. But healing of the soul is a huge, huge blessing from heaven. Because so many people are, 
are tormented by depression and sadness and anger and um, anxiety. And with Jesus, you don't need to have any of that. It all goes. Yeah. Okay. Testimony number two. Uh, so about four, was it four years ago? I found out I had three slip discs in my back. Um, I couldn't walk, couldn't get out of bed, so I had to have surgery on that. Um, they were only able to fix one of the discs, so I was still in a lot of pain. Um, I could walk again and function, but I couldn't put on my own socks. I couldn't, um, I couldn't do half the stuff I did before. Um, and I came to the healing room about four months ago. Yep. And uh, and can I just say he was not about it. No, I, I thought it was a, I thought it was a load of crap. I'll be perfectly honest. I didn't believe it. Um, did you it say was, load of crap? I did say <laughs> load of crap. <laughs> I did. Um, yep, yeah, that makes the testimony better. There is no doubt it healed me because I went from taking Percocet every day. I couldn't put on my own socks. I could hardly get out of bed myself. To I haven't had Percocet since. Um, I can put on my own socks. I can do stuff. I picked my wife up and my back doesn't hurt. So, <laughs> amen. Awesome. Just like that. Isn't that one interesting? One didn't want to get out of bed, and the other one couldn't get out of bed. And now you both can get out of bed. And then, Faith, would you just come up and share one more time yours? You guys did so good at condensing them. I tell stories. It doesn't end well. (laughs) Yeah. So, basically, long story short, um, I messed up my knee two summers ago forget what year that is, I think 2017, and insurance agents took forever to get insurance to go through, and I got an MRI, and they said that I had something wrong with it, that I had to go to physical therapy for, so I was in physical therapy for 11 weeks, and halfway through physical therapy, they're like, oh, one of your legs is longer than the other one. We have to basically change your entire regimen to, like, train these muscles so you can function sort of normally with this lift that we'll give you so your legs will act the same length when you're standing. So after we did all that, I came. I was at church, and I was talking to Pastor Pat one day, and that came up, and he's like, oh, well, that's something that God likes to fix a lot. So we got some people, and we sat over there, and I got prayed over, and in the middle of the praying, Steve White, who's not here today, came up. He was kind of in the background of everything. And he's like, you need to pull on her leg and it'll grow. And it'll get longer. And then, I don't remember who, I think it was Jeff, pulled on my leg. <laughs> and now my legs are the same length. And I don't have any pain. And, yeah. But, but you said you could feel it when it happened. It wasn't yeah. just like, see, we were careful. Because we made sure her hips were square against the wall so that... You know, because you, how you know, and then we could see, and then when um, when Steve came and said, pull on it and it'll grow, because nothing was happening when we were praying. It was just not happening. And then as soon as he said that, Jeff and Nikki both had heard the same thing from the Lord, and they said, hey, I, we heard the same thing. So somebody, Jeff, maybe tugged on her leg, and he, you were the one who could see it, right? He watched it actually grow, and she could feel it as it was happening. It was crazy. It was awesome. (laughs) Amen.